If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. And now please join me in a spirit of prayer. You already know what we're worried about, Holy One. Worried seems a bit of an understatement, though. Some of us have already been laid off. Some of us are already working three jobs. Some of us are already living paycheck to paycheck. So yeah, worried doesn't quite cover it. We are tired. We are scared. We are grieving. So because we're really not sure what's next or even when next will come, we're going to take the advice Paul was said to have given to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving should be made for everyone. So here we go. For the teachers and education staff who know exactly how much their students rely on school for routine, inspiration, relationship, and their next meal, we pray. For every single soon-to-be graduate who worked so hard to get to the finish line, but now everything is canceled, we pray. For the parents who are now trying to work from home, but who now have tiny coworkers who really do not care about deadlines or restroom breaks or conference calls, we pray. For the truck drivers, food preparers, shelf stockers, caregivers, farmers, produce pickers, the overlooked and the underpaid on whom we are discovering the world actually turns, we pray for first responders and medical personnel who keep showing up, keep gloving up, keep masking up, we pray. For first responders and medical personnel who keep showing up even when there are no more gloves or masks, we pray. For the spirit of community effort that puts the whole before the one that we might all get through this, we pray. Help us hold fast, Holy One, for we have a ways to go. You'll be hearing from us. Amen. 
And now let us say together a version of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Creator, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For you reign in the power that is love, now and always. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask of him how he received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he, now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he listens to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do not see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Well, friends, I guess the lectionary decided we needed a few more challenges to deal with this week because this text is a real booger. Most of us stumble right out of the gate with this scripture, and rightly so. I know this is an interesting way to start, but the consequences of how this passage has been misquoted and misinterpreted are indeed very serious. The Gospel of John frequently uses antagonistic language about, quote, the Jews in his gospel. All too often, contemporary Christians have used passages like this one, in which Jesus argues with Pharisees, to justify anti-Jewish attitudes. And this is particularly important to note in this moment, when we are seeing a rise in violence against the Jewish community. Theologian Gail O'Day reminds us that in this text, John positions Jesus to give voice to his community's needs and anger. The argument here is an intrafamily dispute, one wronged sibling arguing with the sibling he holds responsible for some wrong. For members of John's community, who sense themselves to be outcast and marginalized, hearing such strident language in the mouth of Jesus may have restored their sense of power and dignity. But nothing justifies removing Jesus' words in John from the intra-Jewish tumult of the first century and using them as a guide for another time. John's language must always be read critically and with full awareness of how dangerous they become when removed from their original context. This text is challenging for other reasons. The Gospel of John plays with two meanings of blindness literal blindness or absence of sight, and metaphorical blindness or the inability to understand or perceive. Scholars who work in disability studies remind us how difficult these stories about healing are for real people who are blind. Restored sight does not necessarily mean rightness. Restored sight does not necessarily mean wholeness. 
but we'll get back to that. It is important to state clearly that John's metaphor is imperfect. These are not the only challenges we face with the text. Here again, the question posed in the second verse, after John has described Jesus noticing the man blind from birth. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Perhaps when John was writing his gospel, he knew this story would not play well for the person who posed that question, so he masked the identity of the individual just as one of the disciples. Otherwise, the guy who asked would be everyone's least favorite disciple. The same goes for the rest of the people in the story, who all want to know who is to blame for the man's blindness. It is easy to assume that, except for Jesus and the man who was blind, the entire story is populated by people who are either judgy McJudgersons or science-denying religious wackadoos, which is obviously a technical term. It's tempting for us to scoff at them. I mean, who assumes sin causes blindness or deafness or type 1 diabetes or asthma or heart disease or the myriad of other conditions people are born with or develop later in life? At best, we offer the crowd in this story a little leeway only because we presume that they just weren't as smart back then as we are now. But of course, we know that isn't true. Every two years since the early 1990s, the National Science Foundation has produced a report called Science and Engineering Indicators, designed to survey the public's understanding of science concepts. For the first 16 years, it basically reported that U.S. adults were less willing than adults in other industrial countries to accept certain concepts as factual, like evolution and the Big Bang. And this pattern held until 2010. And what happened then? Did Americans suddenly experience an epiphany in U.S. science literacy? Mm, not exactly. Rather, the National Science Board, which oversees the foundation, chose to leave out the section that discussed these issues in the 2010 edition, saying that the questions were flawed indicators of scientific knowledge because responses conflated knowledge and religious beliefs. In short, they realized that for a good chunk of Americans, religious beliefs override scientific facts. So maybe it's not that this story is filled with people who just didn't know about science, but that they were just doing what people still do, use religious beliefs to try to inoculate themselves from struggle and pain, comforting themselves with the idea that bad things only happen to bad people. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? After all, punishment of children for their parents' sins is found in Exodus, in the Psalms, and in the prophet Isaiah's writing. If we can just avoid doing whatever it was the parents did or whatever it was he did to cause the blindness, then we can avoid his fate. There is scripture that explicitly rejects the idea that a parent's sin will be visited on their children. 
Ezekiel 18.20 says, A child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be their own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be their own. But for people looking to blame others who want to pretend as if bad things, challenging circumstances, difficulties, death and dying and grief can be cordoned off somehow or avoided, denied, or given the slip, it's an inconvenient truth that life happens. Jesus must have read from the prophet Isaiah because he ain't having the argument that sin causes blindness. When they asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus rejects the premise of the question, neither. Not him, not them, nope, that's not how it works, he says, that's not how any of this works. But even though Jesus rejects religious superstition about sin causing a particular medical condition, the story is still problematic. While the text is clear that Jesus didn't believe anyone's sin caused the man's blindness, it does seem to say that Jesus believed that God did, that God caused the man's blindness just to prove a point. He was born blind, verse 3 reports, so that God's works might be revealed in him. We've heard this or a variation of it before, right? I mean, talking head televangelists make this claim every time there is a natural disaster, an act of violence or tragedy. They say that God sent it, did it, caused it, is teaching a lesson or is punishing someone. And much of that teaching is based on the text we read today. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. But that's not what Jesus said. As in, that phrase does not actually appear in the original manuscript. It's impossible for us to see how firmly Jesus rejects the connection between sinful action and illness because we aren't reading the original Greek. Look with me at verse 3. Pause the video if you need to. But in most of the translations we use, the text reads, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. But the Greek manuscript doesn't say that. In verse 3, the phrase, he was born blind, is not in the Greek text of Jesus' reply. I'm going to say that again. In the original Greek, the phrase, he was born blind so that, does not appear in what we know as verse 3. Jesus did not attribute the man's blindness to a divine, diabolical plan to prove a point about God's power. We can say this, too, about theology that has God sanctioning divine child sacrifice by sending Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of the world, I mean, God has got to be offended and exhausted from being characterized so terribly. So a better translation of verse 3, with fidelity to the original Greek, is this. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Period. 
If God's works are to be revealed in him, we must work the works of God. In other words, if anything about this situation is attributable to God, it is the rallying cry to love one another. For Jesus, the point was not to establish cause for the man's blindness, but to present it as an occasion for doing God's work of healing, a catch-all word for reconciliation, inclusion, and tender care. No more assuming that a person's circumstances are divine punishment. No more allegiance to religious legalism that makes it excusable for the haves to separate themselves from the have-nots. No more acting as if we're holier than thou or pretending that bad things only happen to bad people. When we see suffering, when we see isolation, when we see uncertainty, our assumption should be that God's heart is already broken over it and that God expects us to be about the holy work of reconciliation, inclusion, and care. Like many healing stories in the Bible, the narrative in John 9 seems to shift pretty quickly. We know that the man who can now see believes and that Jesus affirms him, but notes that the Pharisees' devotion remains to the law, not to the revelation of God. They do not have understanding. Well, we really don't know what happens to the man after. It's tempting to think that everything was sunshine and roses for the man after this, for as William Dean Howells once said, what the American public always wants is a tragedy with a happy ending. But we can also imagine, given the inquiries, the skepticism, and the rejection he faced just in the episode we read, that he probably went on to face more inquiries, more skepticism, and more rejection. That is, unless the people heeded Jesus' instructions to work the works of God, to reconcile, to include, and offer tender care for each other. We face the same choice right now. When we make it to the other side of COVID-19 and the threat of the pandemic has been put to rest, trauma will remain. We will bear both somatic and psychological scars in addition to coping with the death toll. We already know from the present economic crisis that the economic aftermath will be brutal and exponentially harder on those who are financially vulnerable already. So instead of simply going back to the way things were, let us reshape how we live together through reconciliation, inclusion, and tender care for one another. Let us build a longer table instead of higher walls. Let us not pretend that trickle-down economics ever worked. Let us demand health care instead of wealth care. Let us never again take for granted a handshake, a hug, or the chance to break bread with one another. 
Restoring things to the way they were does not necessarily mean rightness. Restoring things to the way they were does not necessarily mean wholeness. Things are never going to be the same again, and God is counting on us to make sure they aren't. This is a moment when we get to define ourselves and our way of living. Oh, the works of God that are ready to be done. So let us get to work. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.